So it really is quite wonderful to be back here uh, with you all in Berkeley. I, I really look forward to these visits and uh, the weekend with the women every year. And, uh, you know, this is home for me. And I enjoy my new home very much in the Sierra Foothills, but having grown up here in the Bay Area, this is still home. It's nice to be home. Thank you for welcoming me back. And since I saw you last, last year, um, there have been uh, many things have come and gone. I'm sure the same is true with you since last February. And I think the main thing of note uh, that perhaps you might have some interest in is that I had the the privilege or the opportunity to take a three-month sabbatical this summer and go on yet another uh, pilgrimage and adventure, Dharma adventure in India. So it turned out that I spent 100 days in India, and I didn't know uh, that until about halfway through my journey. Uh, it's interesting how when either, you know, maybe we're backpacking or maybe we're on a retreat or maybe we're doing some intensive spiritual travel and at some point in the journey, things get simple enough and we get settled enough that thoughts start to come into the mind like, I wonder how long I've been here. I wonder how long I will be here. And I started counting. Uh, And I realized, oh, how interesting. just so happens that the plane tickets I got were 100 days. I thought, oh, beautiful. It's nice to have a headline. I can just say to people, I spent 100 days in India. Nice round numbers. So 100 days in India. And, um, you know, I did what what we tend to do in communities like this when we uh, travel places for the spiritual path, uh, I went and received teachings from masters that um, I'm really grateful to have been in their presence and have received those teachings. I went into deep retreat, went on a great Dharma road adventure. Uh, The Buddha wandered by stages, as it was said. I uh, bounced along in a vehicle by stages over some of the highest roads in the world, in the Himalayas. Amazing. So some of these things you probably only do once in a lifetime. And I'm incredibly grateful for those opportunities, you know, and for the support of my own community to do that. Uh, because uh, Mountain Stream Meditation Center is uh, quite an expansive community. Its home center is very small in Nevada City, California, but our inner circle runs through Northern California and Western Nevada State. And our wider circle includes our connected communities at Spirit Rock um, and further east, you know, nationally. So I was really grateful for their support to be able to do that. And at the end of the journey, I came back to where I started. And where I started was New Delhi, India. And I flew in during monsoon and I flew out just after monsoon. Some of you know monsoon. We know monsoon here in a little way. Uh, That big storm we had a couple weekends ago, there were moments of monsoon. It's not exactly the same as India, but we know torrential rains. So um, I spent a few days in New Delhi before I left, and and that's actually, uh, there was, uh, what, some confluence there. Some things came together that really inspired me, uh, that I want to weave some teachings together with tonight and uh, explore a little bit. 
One of the things I'm particularly interested in is actually the integrative period of the spiritual path. You know, we can have some really big insights, some really big spiritual experiences, whether we were planning them or not, incredible ahas. And one of the things I'm profoundly interested in is what happens next? Because that's the beginning of something new. And that something new can pervade our lives. It won't be the same as the spiritual highs or the incredible states that we may or may not have had or that we long for. But then there's our whole life. And so I really took that period of days in New Delhi, I was by myself, as a period of integration. Just kind of say, okay, a lot has happened to me. A lot has opened in this mind and this heart and this energetic body. And who is it that's sitting here in this funky hotel room in New Delhi, 100 degrees, sweating? Who is this person? What is happening now? And so I kept those days really quiet and really simple. A little bit lonely, actually. But in a kind of sweet way. Because I knew I was coming back. And I was coming back to a lot of people. And a lot of people with a lot of interest to hear what had happened to me and a lot of needs. And I wasn't sure whether I could actually say something that would be interesting to them or fulfill those needs. And so I took these few days in this New (coughs) Delhi hotel room. And that was where I discovered that I was actually sitting in the epicenter of something amazing that was happening not just in New Delhi, but actually across India. And maybe you've heard about this, but I bet a lot of you haven't. It just so happened that when I was there, uh, the beginning of October, so let me frame the period of time. First of all, um, India has a new prime minister. I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, Prime Minister Moody. And he was elected last May, and I showed up last, when did I show up? I showed up there at the end of June. And so the whole country was quite excited. There was something new in the air. Everyone I talked to was really excited about this new prime minister. I'm sure not everybody in the country was, but everyone I talked to was. It reminded me a little bit about how certain communities were so excited when President Obama was first elected. Not every community in this country, but certainly this community here. (laughs) I remember the night that President Obama was elected. um, I was with Jack Cornfield doing a fundraiser event in the city, and we had talked to each other in the afternoon before the results came in, and we said, how are we going to keep the spirits up, you know, if it's not the result that people want? Uh, It turned out that he was elected, and I think most people in that room were happy about that. Um, there was that kind of spirit in the air. Now, we know about our elected leaders. Uh, We don't agree with all of their decisions, and there's things about Prime Minister Moody, and there's things about any of our presidents. But there was still this whole gestalt of inspiration in the country. And this is a country, this is the largest democracy in the world, 1,250,000,000 people. Now, to me, that's just a large number until I get on the streets with the people. No. So he had been elected. He had just had a really important visit with President Obama in Washington. And he had gone to meet with Indian expats, with corporate leaders, to meet with President Obama. He was also fasting. He was in the middle of one of his fasting periods with his Hindu faith. And so the White House threw a dinner, and he drank water. 
And they were very impressed, is what I heard, his level of renunciation. So he had just gotten back at the same time that I had arrived in New Delhi. And he had gotten back in time to launch the Clean India campaign. You know about this campaign? It's pretty amazing. One billion, 250 million people. And the campaign is this. He is encouraging all people to offer 100 hours a year of cleaning in various areas of the country, like two hours a week, every month. All of the government officials have been asked to do this. There was a lot of resistance in the government officials when I was there to doing this. Uh, The students were getting involved. The colleges were getting involved all across the country. And more and more people started getting involved. And so they launched this on Gandhi's birthday which is October 2nd, which is the day I was flying out. And so I walked out in the morning, the day I was flying out, and, you know, it was a national holiday. It was was, um, Gandhi's birthday. And the streets were quiet, and there was a parade that was going to come through, and, you know, it's just that national holiday feel. Um, And there were, you know, images around of Prime Minister Moody taking out the brush and, you know, sweeping, and they were talking about all the different things they were going to do. And I started thinking about what happens if 1,250,000,000 people pick up a broom, pick up a, a rag for a couple of hours and start taking care, you know, taking care of our planet. Because one of the things that was heartbreaking for me in this journey and, and is when I go to India is the garbage, especially up in the Himalayas where there's really no way to get it out. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And when I talk to the local people who live in the Himalayas, they say this. They say, you know, it's tragic what's going on. We remember a time where there wasn't trash laying around. And what we can see is that the older generations, they aren't going to learn how to take care of this. It's our children. It's our children that we're trying to educate to take care of this in the next generations. And we're doing the same thing here in Berkeley. I'm doing the same thing here. So, the Clean India Project is about cleaning up public spaces, the railway stations, the bus stations, the, the squares, just anywhere that's a public space. But the deeper intention is to see if every single household in India can have a bathroom by 2019. And right now, half of the Indian households have no bathroom. Okay? So this is an issue of safety, especially for the women, and also for hygienic right? issues of illness. Really, really important. Very, very bold. So I started thinking about this and thinking, okay, well, how does this fit into the Dharma? Because that's the question I always have, is how does this, whatever this is, fit into the Dharma? And I came up with a few things. One is this thing about inner and outer. So when the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness, how to pay attention, he talked about them with the view that we practice them internally, we practice them externally, and we practice them both. And to me, this is the perfect example. We need to clean up our minds. We need to clean up our world and both. And really, the art of the practice is seen time and energy and intention and inspiration. Are we feeling really inspired to clean up our own mind right now? Beautiful. The world needs that. The less defilements are being acted out on this planet, the better. 
because individually we see how painful it is, but when you start to move into the collective level, um, you know, it's very, very difficult. So at the end of the reflection, I'm going to talk about some other things that were going on on the planet that week. You know, and you'll remember them. There's a moment in time. Another theme that came out for me out of this whole experience is this question, what is the perfect gift that wants to be given? So that came out of um, Prime Minister Moody's trip to visit President Obama. And Prime Minister Moody is famous for giving gifts when he visits heads of state. And the gift that he gave Obama, Obama loved very much. And it was the gift of, um, it was the gift of a recording. And it was a recording that, of a visit from Dr. King to India in 1958. And it was a recording that isn't uh, very well known in this country. And so it was given as a gift to President Obama, who was very, very touched. Of course, since then, they've been meeting, and President Obama has gone to New Delhi and visited him, and there's a relationship forming between these two huge, powerful democracies. Very interesting. Interesting times we're in. So I thought, well, what is the perfect gift which wants to be given? And then the third thing that came out for me is our interconnectedness. Because I actually thought about communities like us here in Berkeley when I was in New Delhi and watching this whole project happening and thinking, yeah, these things happen in the world and they inspire other places in the world and inspire other places in the world. We share information individually and online and it's contagious in the best of ways in this case, right? So talk about those three things a little bit. Starting with cleaning up our mind. So I found this um, quote from Bhikkhu Kantipalo that was quite interesting. He says, three things we don't forget to do for the body. Those three things are wash it, feed it, and medicate it. Okay. So it's a general statement. Three things we generally won't forget to do for the body. Of course, if we have the privilege to do it, right? Three things we often forget to do for the mind. Wash it, feed it, and medicate it. (laughs) So washing it, he said, with the purity of calm meditation. Did you know you just took a shower? You know, we came in here for 40 minutes and had a nice mind shower. Feed it with good dhamma, so I hope it's good enough that you go away feeling at least somewhat satisfied. Uh, Maybe your own practice was your good dharma for tonight. Either way. And medicating it by mindfully ridding ourselves of the diseases of greed, aversion, and delusion. And he talked about the supreme medicine of the Dharma, of these teachings of the truth. So he says the mind gets dirty and needs washing, it becomes hungry and needs nourishment. And it is most of the time diseased and needs curing. Why are we so forgetful of our own good? which is an important question we need to ask when we look at the world and what's happening in the world. What isn't being attended to in the world has something to do with, isn't, with what isn't being attended to in ourselves. You know, they're connected. So we'll talk a little bit about this. We'll start with washing it, right? And we can wash the mind with mindfulness. And one of the things I like to use as an analogy for the way that we can wash our minds with mindfulness is the analogy of paddling and floating. 
in our mindfulness practice. Sometimes we need to paddle really, really hard in our practice and give it some effort and some oomph. We need to investigate. We need to label what's going on. We need to straighten our spine even though we're tired after a long day. We need to use our tools. Sometimes, though, we just need to roll over and float and not work so hard and just float down the river and let the mindfulness carry us. The momentum of the practice that's already happened or just the moment of grace where actually I'm present. I don't need to fiddle. I don't need to add anything. We're just right here. So we sort of connect that with the way we wash things because, of course, while I was living in India, I hand-washed everything. And so I started thinking about, well, how do you hand-wash things? Sometimes you really need to wring them out. There was this one teaching that I went to that was a huge teaching up in the high Himalayan desert. And honestly, I've never been so filthy in my entire life. I didn't know a human being could get that dirty. Uh, It was just a very, you know, dirty scene. You were sitting in sand. (laughs) You were walking miles to get where you needed to go. It was very hot. There was a lot of um, pollution in the air from the vehicles. And so in that case, I really needed to scrub and ring and scrub and ring. And then there were other times when it's just like, just sit it in the water and let the dirt move out for 20 minutes. I don't need to work so hard on this. The dirt knows how to release from this garment. And trying to discern, well, which one's more appropriate today? Only we can know, actually. Only we can know. So then we can feed our minds with, uh, with good truth, with good teachings, with nature. Um, so we need tools, we need resources, communities like this. The fact that we record these talks is such a resource because many teachers come in here. And probably some weeks you resonate more with what's being said and who's up front than others, naturally. And you can actually go on dharmaseed.org and listen to a week that you missed or something you want to revisit. It's a resource of the Dharma. And it's all freely offered. It's a completely generosity-based website. I am so grateful to the people that volunteer their time and expertise that this is available for people worldwide. And people actually email me from all over the world and say, I just listened to your talk on Dharma Seed and whatever their thing is. That's amazing. Amazing connection. Of course, the meditation practice itself is an incredible feeding force. Um, When I got back from India, I picked up a Time magazine, and there was an article um, about a veteran with Save a Warrior group. And he meditated 20 minutes a day and actually stopped having panic attacks. 20 minutes is an incredible baseline for an entire life. Some of us are just coming in here. It's your first time here. Welcome. You think, well, how am I going to, what do I do now? I came on a Thursday night. I think I'm interested. Try 20 minutes a day. It's enough time for the nervous system to settle, for the mind to collect. But it's a great amount of time for a whole life because sometimes we're having children and sometimes we aren't. And sometimes our jobs are really intense and sometimes they aren't. And sometimes we're grieving, and sometimes we aren't. Can we actually have something that's enough of a baseline to meet us through a whole life? No. 
Then there's community, you know, the seen and the unseen community, and really understanding we don't do this practice by ourselves. We do it together. We can't do it for ourselves or by ourselves. Do it together. So this is from uh, Saida Utejaniya. He says, the teachings, the Dhamma is everywhere. He says, Dhamma is ever-present, and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is also teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. We can't know or see Dhamma because the defilements in the mind and because there isn't enough understanding or wisdom. If we can think and see nature as it really is, the mind is free and free from defilements. So then we need to talk about, well, what are the defilements? What's he talking about? So defilements are the mind that wants, the mind that doesn't want, and the mind that is confused. And so I thought I would bring in, um, in terms of medicating it, we could talk about medicating the aspect of the wanting mind, and we've all got it, uh, with the aspect of generosity. Uh, The defilement of aversion with the aspect of loving-kindness the defilement of delusion or confusion with wisdom. And so I thought I'd bring in a teaching about ignorance and uh, moving beyond ignorance that I received while I was in India from one of the masters. She said, the main ignorance is that we do not know who we are. That's our main ignorance. We do not know who we are. Therefore, we identify with what we are not, this ego, this sense of self, which depends on the past and the future. She said the ego actually cannot live in the present. The ego can only comment on the present. Because the ego does not inherently exist, so it just means it's not solid and separate, okay? does not inherently exist. It's defensive, and it creates dramas to make it feel very real. Do you know that one? Dramas. When awareness is revealed behind the thoughts and emotions, we look at the ignorance suffering in ourselves and others, and compassion arises. So what she's saying is, if we think that we're solid and separate, if we think that we don't change, and that like I am genuinely separate from you always and forever, uh, we've got a little bit of confusion going on. Now, of course, we've also got to look at the other side, which is on the relative level. If I think I am you and I get too involved with you and your journey, um, I may drown. So we need to hold both. But this was more of an absolute teaching. And so we can talk about compassion and metta as medicine to purify the mind. And I uh, actually had the opportunity to have dinner with Kate, uh, who's one of the main teachers here, uh, before I came, and she said that you've been exploring a lot these divine abodes, this loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, so that I'd tie a little bit of that in. Really, with these qualities, what we're doing is we're creating the possibility of a shift in the mind, and the shift is actually a shift of the center of gravity. So let's say we've got our habitual center of gravity, Uh, And in general, if we're not being incredibly present and awake and alive in the moment, that tends to be a center of gravity that's not so helpful. It may have a lot of habituation. It may have a lot of judgments. 
and they have a lot of old stories, and they all seem pretty real, and they've got a center of gravity, and we fall down that rabbit hole, and we get lost. It's a pretty natural thing to have happen when our minds aren't trained. So it's a powerful center of gravity. The invitation of the qualities of the divine abodes is to shift that center of gravity into awakened mind-heart states. And that center of gravity is just as strong as this one. But we need to train to nurture that center of gravity. I took a five-year period where I actually retrained the mind from its habitual response to pain, you know, or suffering, mine, yours, the world's, probably the same as your general response when you're feeling habituated to when things are difficult. Uh, And I retrained it to have a first response of these two words, I care. And then I started to be on the lookout, where is the difficulty in me, in us, in the world, to have the opportunity to have a response of, I care. What happens when we do that is we decrease reactivity. And when we decrease reactivity, we then have all of our energy and resources available to have an appropriate response, to respond skillfully. It's a pretty simple thing, but it has huge potential. Absolutely huge. So we know there are near misses. We know that when we're talking about friendliness or loving kindness, a near miss of that is we get overly attached. It might mean something like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, and may you do it in my time frame and my agenda and have it look just like how I want it. That's a near miss. But we do it with those we love, don't we? And also those we don't love are difficult people. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, so you'll be easier on me. Right? (laughs) These are the near misses. And the near miss of compassion, um, on one side is the quality of pity, which basically says, I over here am so sorry for you way over there as if I can't really relate to your pain, as if I'm going to defend. And we defend because we care about ourselves, but it's a little bit too separated. It's not quite in harmony. But then the other near miss is this quality of the culture of our times called codependence, right? Where it's saying, I have just lost clarity that in relative reality there is a me and a you and that you have your path, and that I have my path, and that I care about you, but I can't fix it for you. I can't save you. I can have an appropriate response, and I can be wise to what that response is. Those, those paths. So, we've washed it, fed it, and medicated it. What about the perfect gift that wants to be given? This is my favorite quote um, about generosity because as we begin to clean up our mind and clean up our lives, then we can be available to the impulses to give. When we're feeling burned out, when we're completely lost, when we're in a lot of confusion, it's really, really hard to give, much less be on the lookout for impulses to give. This is my favorite quote from the Buddha about dana or generosity. 
A noble giver is one who is happy before, during, and after giving. Before giving, one is happy anticipating the opportunity to exercise generosity. While giving, one is happy that she is making another happy by fulfilling a need. After giving, one is satisfied that he has done a good deed. And I found myself spontaneously taking this on as a practice while I was living and practicing in India. It, it just it seemed like the obvious thing to do. You know, I have so much privilege compared to the conditions I was living in, you know, as do we all here. And so I started being on the lookout for what could be offered and how to be skillful with that. And it was little things. Like one day, somebody in the guest house I was staying in said, I asked her, how did you sleep? She had just arrived. She said, well, not so well. I was kind of cold. I wasn't expecting it to be so cold at night here. I was living at 12,000 feet. Um, and I said, well, you know, I have an extra blanket. Would that help? You could borrow it. Her face lit up. Oh, that would be great. We became friends. Somebody else got sick. We've all been sick, and I've been sick in India, and it's hard to be sick in India. And she didn't know where the local clinic was, and I did know where the local clinic was. And I said, let me tell you where it is. You know, let's see if we can get you a taxi. Do you want me to go with you? Really? You'd do that? Of course I'd do that. You know? And we do that for our friends and our family here when we can. We're on the lookout for when we can give. And when we genuinely can't give, when we're in a cycle of giving, we can actually set that boundary without guilt and say, today I can't, but I know in my heart that I care and I do. And may you get exactly what you need in just the perfect way and really mean it, really mean it, so that we don't have to save the world. Now, the discernment of trying to figure out how to offer financial donations in a way that actually supports the communities that I was living in and the communities that were supporting my dharma instead of just throwing American money around, this is a huge discernment. And it's really hard to be skillful. It's a lot easier to not think about it. And we do the same thing here in this country where we choose what organizations to make donations to every year or whenever we do it. What's the impact going to be? Where do I want to put the resources I've worked so hard to gather? What's, what do I want to put my heart behind? These are our dharma practices. So then there's the challenges of, of uh, what generosity based in compassion. And I was just revisiting a quote from Ram Das in his old book, How Can I Help? He says, it's one thing to have one's heart engaged. It's another to have it completely overwhelmed or broken. I love that quote. Because when we give too much, and when our compassion uh, flows larger than we're capable of actually maintaining, we tend to get numb, we tend to get indifferent, we tend to freeze up, and we lose our capacity to be of service on the planet. So it's a really important point that generosity includes giving to ourselves. I have to really watch that with teaching because I'm serving hundreds if not thousands of people and I know a lot of you in your work or in the situations in your family are serving a lot of people. And it's this question of when do I give to myself and say to myself, hey, I'm giving to myself right now that I might be better of service to others in the future. And that's actually part of the path. It's part of being wise this giving and receiving and giving and receiving. 
So all of this, of course, requires incredibly deep listening, right? No one can give us these answers. We have to look and see for ourselves. That's the whole invitation of this practice, to look and see for ourselves. When I was um, spending six months in practice and study two trips ago in India in 2010, I had the opportunity to receive teachings from His Holiness the Karmapa. This is the 17th Karmapa um, in that system. And he gave this quote that I've been working with ever since in my own practice about this. And I trust his words because his position is that he is in exile from his home country of Tibet in India. Uh, There's been long periods of time when he hasn't been allowed to leave. And he is an inspiration for his people. He may very well be instrumental in the top leadership of the Tibetan people after the passing of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So he's got a lot on his shoulders, and he's still in his 20s. Right? But there's a lot of wisdom there. This is what he had to say about this, the deep listening, the skillfulness, the qualities that are needed. He said, we may want to help, but lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and intention must be combined with practicing the perfections of the heart and favorable conditions are needed. And it was that and favorable conditions are needed at the end of his statement that made me perk up and like pay attention. Because I was in the middle of days of teachings and you're just sitting there hour after hour and, and yeah, you know, my attention wasn't always 100%. Shocking, right? I'm sure your attention isn't always 100% when you're listening on a Thursday night and you're tired. And I heard him say, and favorable conditions are needed. And I thought, that's it. There's something larger than ourselves, our wishing to give, our deep caring, um, our own agendas and purifying and releasing the attachment with that, the cultivation of the heart, all of this and favorable conditions are needed. And so there are just times when we're out there in the streets and we're doing the good work that we're doing to clean up this planet, to address injustice, to heal oppression that we are doing. And the favorable conditions just aren't there. And we have to have incredible equanimity with that and say, okay, favorable conditions are not here. And I'm going to show up again. We do that in our own practice. We do that in our work in the world. So then there's receiving the gift, right? And I can't come to visit you guys without quoting James. I can't resist. So um, James and I have known each other since I was very, very young. And uh, he was the first one that tapped me on the shoulder at the ripe old age of 24 years old and said, Heather, I think you got something. And I was a wreck at the time. Um, My mother had just passed away, and, and I was a complete wreck. And here's this teacher that I trusted and cared about saying, think you've got something, maybe you should teach. I'm like, what are you talking about? So all these years, I'm going to bring his voice in. And it's about gratitude. It's from his book, of course. 
And I love this section about what does gratitude feel like in your body and your mind. Because it's an invitation for us to experience the gift, receiving the gift. Receiving the gift, we feel grateful. So participants in the Awakening Joy course said, I breathe more deeply. I feel a glow in my chest, a tingling in my fingers, and a half smile appears on my face. Love that one. What if we all called up something that we're grateful for just now so that we actually have a muse for this? Sometimes simple is better. So I'm noticing that I feel grateful for the um, food in my belly right now, that it's sustaining um, the words that are being spoken. Maybe a few other people call out something you're grateful for. I'll repeat it. Bananas. (laughs) Magnolias in her garden. What else? Her job. Yeah, the gift of life. What else? Rivers and waterfalls, yeah. Dog with wagging tail. I can feel that somatically. Oh, I love that one. I don't love that you have a painful back, but what he said is that he's got a Tylenol just in case. <laughs> Somebody on a retreat I was teaching recently had some sort of physical something. I, I don't remember the details. But she carried around an Advil in her pocket the whole retreat. And it was actually enough. She didn't actually end up needing to use it. But just to have that resource if she did need it was incredible. She was very grateful. Any last ones? Friendships, yeah. The Dharma community. Dharma community, Yeah. It feels like a blanket of goodness descending upon me. It brings me energy and peace at the same time. I like myself and my muscles relax when I feel grateful. I feel like my body is resting on the perfect pillow created to hold all of me. So gratitude is a wonderful uh, muse for shifting the center of gravity. You know, sometimes we can have metta. Sometimes we can have compassion. Sometimes it's just as simple as having a hard time. Is there anything I'm grateful for in this moment that I could call the foreground of attention? So this is from Pema Chodron. It's from her Lojong slogans. And the slogan is, be grateful to everyone. It's one of my favorites. Just another way to be grateful. Others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting. Shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. 
When you react in the habitual way with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, however, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. The end. <laughs> Thank you, my teacher, difficult person in my life. You know, That's it, right? So then we have interconnectedness. Oh, whether it's difficult situation on the planet, difficult situation in our family, somebody we're really connected with is quite easy, it's quite loving. And all, you know, for sometimes the way that we get more interconnected is through an external journey. It's why we take vacations. It's why we take pilgrimages. We drop kind of the external layers of our regular lives and we're open to something new. It's why we go on retreat, which is more the internal layer. Sometimes it's an interpersonal layer that helps us. Like there's been a long-standing conflict and we're able to have a conversation. And even though we don't clear it up completely, we just walk away feeling a little bit more easy with that person. Again, more interconnection. So the Buddha taught, of course, about extending this love and compassion to everyone. In the end, the invitation is without exception. No one left out. So one of the metaphors is like a tree spreads its shade without distinction. Or like the sun shines its rays without distinction. And isn't it interesting how the sun really does not choose who to shine its rays on, and yet sometimes it almost feels like it's shining on everyone but me? It's just one of those days, everyone but me? It's like, no, without distinction. And there's a sutta that I really love, um, that I learned as a chant, that kind of invites this in. And it's talking about the internal experience in the mind uh, and the external experience in the world. And it goes like this. So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, Without hostility and without ill will, I will abide pervading one quarter of the mind with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. And that just keeps going round and round, above and below, around and everywhere. You and me and mind and you and me and us. And I just love it. I chant it to myself a lot. Um, You know, and it's easy to get fixated on our muse. It's easy to think it's about using some phrases or it's about someone or something. Uh, In the end, it's just about the big. And so then I go back to India and I think about Prime Minister Moody. And he was attempting and is continuing to be attempting to inspire 1,225,000,000 people to clean up their country. You know? That's so big, I can't even fathom it. And yet we do those things. 
You know, we take the roles that we're in and we inspire the way we can for wholesomeness to come to the foreground, depending on whatever our level of responsibility and authority is in any area of our life. It may be our family, it may be our work, it may be our community action. Um, it may be that we're in a position where we really can support a lot of change. And it may be that we can support a tremendous amount of transformation in our own hearts and minds, and they're all needed. They're all needed. So there were a number of other things happening that very same period of time. You know, October 2nd, Mahatma Gandhi's birthday. While this was happening in India, while things were happening here in the U.S. But a few things I remember that exact same day were happening. They're just moments in time that allow us to connect. The students in Hong Kong. The students in Hong Kong were in the street that day, and they had been in the street that day for many weeks, and it had been raining, and they had their umbrellas, and they were trying to get through to talk to the people in power about having just elections. They were putting their bodies on the line. That's not separate. ISIS was in the middle of um, attacking the Syrian town of Kobani. And it looked like they were going to take it. And in fact, they didn't. And there were people fleeing for their lives and praying with all their hearts, just as we were praying for them. That was going on. Today, things are happening. Everything's happening. It's always happening. And the question is the lens. When do we turn the lens to ourselves? And when do we turn the lens to the world? And when are those moments that we actually understand that we're not even turning the lens? There's nothing to be turned. So my flight that night was leaving, I think at 1 a.m., October 3rd. So at about 8 p.m., it was dark, it was steamy, and I caught a taxi to the airport. And the most amazing thing, I had to drive through Delhi about a half an hour. One of the invitations of this practice is to notice cessation, is to notice the absence of what is not helpful for us, what isn't serving us, and to notice when those things are in cessation or the absence of them in the moment, and also to be on the lookout for them. The absence of wanting over-wanting, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. So I'm driving in this cab to the airport, and there was the most amazing absence. Guess what it was? There was no trash anywhere. This is a city in which, not billions, millions of people live. And when I drove through coming in, it was filled with trash, I didn't see any trash at all, and I was amazed. It opened my eyes. It was such a reminder. One person, one broom, one person, one bag, one person, one hand to pick up and take care, and we can clean up some of the biggest megacities on the planet. We can do that. They did it that day. And I know that if I flew back into Delhi tomorrow, it probably wouldn't look like that. 
Because that's what happens. Whether it's our minds or the world, we clean it up, and then it gets a little messy again. How about just our office? We clean it up, and then it gets a little messy again. And we come back and we say, okay, I care. I'm going to reattend to this again and again and again. And I'm not going to lose hope. I'm just going to keep going on the spiritual path and the actions that we need to take to keep this planet healthy and whole. That's it. So, closing quote from Gandhi. He said, When I despair, I remember that all through history, The way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. So that's what I have to offer for reflection. I thank you for your attention and your practice. And instead of doing Q&A like we so often do, it's like I said, every day something is happening, and there's plenty of things happening. If we went around with the talking piece in this room, all the different things were being affected by individually and collectively. Uh, in this room, that there's something happening in our Dharma community that I want to make sure that we're aware of and and take this um, last few minutes just to send our blessings uh, in a particular way. And that is while I was packing up to come down here this morning, I received an email. Uh, You may already know about this, but I I only found out today. Um, It was an email with a link to uh, Lion's Roar, the the online... um, Uh, Dharma magazine or uh, website. And it's that one of our great, great Dharma matriarchs, Ruth Dennison, um, really one of the biggest elders in our lineage, um, had a massive stroke. She's 92 years old. She had a massive stroke, and she's in hospice now. And I'm going to start crying because I love her and respect her very, very much. Um, and I'm sure that not all of you know her, but she, you know she actually is is the oldest um, woman Dharma teacher in our Western Insight lineage, and she's trained through the Burmese tradition. Uh, she's incredibly creative as a teacher and uh, an inc- a, a very much a maverick, very much somatically based, very very wise, very very eccentric. And I've had the privilege to spend time with her off and on over the years. And I'm even more grateful for that in moments like this. The thing is, whether you've ever heard of Ruth before, whether you personally know Ruth or not, what we do know is that 
Somebody that has been a lamp in bringing the Dharma to the West is on their way out of this life. And we care. You know, we care that somebody had the courage to bring the Dharma to the West because otherwise we wouldn't be here. You know, and so we can send our courage and our blessings to her and her students, her main students, and the people who love her. And my guess is, my guess is, is that in this community, we also have those that we love personally that are on their way out or have recently passed. And so I'm thinking maybe we could call out their names. So that there's actually a field of this blessing and, and this well-wishing for all of those that we care about that are on their way out or have just departed their bodies. You know? And that we can each in our own way send our blessings. Is there anyone like that in your life that you'd like to call out their first name? Maybe your relationship with them? Wow, so glad I asked. There's so many. So we were just in this moment sending them our blessings, our loving kindness. No wishes from our hearts. This is from Ruth. In my lecture, I would say, are we knowing that it is for real that we're going to die? Then you must feel more this body so you can appreciate this present moment deeper in gratitude. And that will give you more joy for being in contact with that which is around you. And you will not have this accumulated anxiety as you're starting to age that you think, what is now? I say, let's celebrate now. Impermanence is a wonderful thing. We really should bow to it because it gives us space. It doesn't overpopulate the world. It's like you have a room and you always buy furniture and you don't throw any out. It's the same with people. We're already not doing so good with that. There is a time to celebrate impermanence and there is a time to grieve. 
They are both equally important. And I think that in the sweetness of the depths of our grief, we continue to be in harmony with the breath of impermanence. So we're really thinking of every person in this hall who is grieving right now and every person on the planet. May we continually find our balance and our harmony with the truth of impermanence. May we remember joy. Thank you so much for your practice and your presence. Until we meet again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.